Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you back to the podcast that explores our place in time. And wow, is this ever a culminating moment? I'm getting tired of hearing myself say it, but for those of you who don't already know, in 2017, I authored a science fiction story, An Oral History of the End of Reality, about the proliferation of artificial intelligence-assisted media production and what it would do to us, how it would change our processes of social epistemology, what we regard as truth. And then reaching back even further, my essay, The Evolution of Surveillance, about how human technology co-evolution can be understood as an arms race that stretches back over 500 million years in the evolution of new sensation, cognition, and the jamming of those systems. So, well, anyway, here we are, December 2022, and if you're listening to this, you already have an opinion about whether you feel that the proliferation of new tools like Midjourney and Lenza and ChatGPT are good or bad. It felt really important to me to host a kind of emergency congress about this topic with some of my artist friends, and I hope you enjoy this unedited six-way sense-making session. But before we dive in, I want to thank new Patreon supporter Andre Silva and the folks who have purchased my music since the last episode, Shoji Sean, Cody Thomas Koyak, and uh, Jeff Hansen, and the folks who have bought my art as well. Although, as I will explain later in this episode, I'm starting to wonder why I even bother. But yes, yes. <laughs> there are so many ways that you can support what's going on here and the best is patreon.com slash michael garfield or michaelgarfield.substack.com if you don't particularly like being inundated with all of my new projects in a piecemeal fashion but prefer a digested form okay so with all that said the holidays ahead here we are in the ragnarok of our creative epoch. It's my great honor to have Julian Picasa, Topher Sipes, Evo Haining, Micah Daigle, Jamie Curcio on the show to discuss the adaptation of artists to our rapidly evolving technological milieu. Enjoy. All right. Wow. This is amazing that I have all of you here. I'm very, very pleased to have all of you join me for this special emergency roundtable. I feel like we're at Rivendell, the internet Rivendell. And I am, I am Agent Elrond, and I'm saying that something very dark is gathering on the horizon, and we need to form a council and a fellowship to discuss this. But then again, you know, 
it's a, a beautiful, efflorescent, wonderful thing too. So it's confusing. So what I would like to do is just go around and have all of you briefly introduce yourselves. And in, in so doing, talk about the ways that, you know, like your history as an artist and the ways that you're using artificial intelligence in your artwork now, starting with Evo. And then I will, I don't know if everyone's showing up in the same grid that I have. So probably not. So I will pick after, I'll just go after that. Yeah. All right. So hi, I am Evo Haining. I am in Los Angeles today. I've been a creator producer for about 25 years. I've been an artist for 40. I started in painting and pastels and I started writing stories about our relationships with AI about 20 years ago. I wrote a series 15 years ago and I started developing that for virtual worlds in the metaverse around 2005, six, seven. And today I create and generate across concept development work for clients, commissions, and my own work. And I have a design lab and gallery where we take art from throughout time, like antiques and vintage, and then we make new art and we put those things side by side. So that's called Reality Craft in Oakland. Julian, because you're the one that got me into mid-journey in the first place, you know, which you might, I don't know, you might be like, I regret doing this, but anyway. No, you know, I have a few regrets in this life and exposing the creative, intelligent people around me to new tools and technologies will never rank among them. However, you know, I've on several occasions kind of worried about the long-term impacts that I have on people's lives because I definitely, I like to take people beyond the pale a bit out into the unknown and different people handle that differently. Some people handle it really well and others freeze up. But I think it's important, you know, to, to do that, to kind of walk out into the unknown on a regular basis and remind ourselves how much we don't know. So I'm, I'm really happy to have, you know, helped bring you into this in terms of who I am and my background. I am, say, a creative technologist. I, I have a background in, in the arts and in the film industry, but it was mostly technology that kind of was at the core of my activities. So about 10 years ago, I found myself as a visual effects supervisor who was really curious about industrial design and automation and got into things like CNC, you know, and laser cutting, digital fabrication and, and blockchain about 10 years ago. And so really, I just, I'm somebody who's enjoyed the privilege of leading an interest-driven life. And I've mostly been exploring different creative applications of technology all over. I run the gamut at this point and I continue. So, you know, diving in, I, I started with creating things with AI back, I'd say in 2016, although machine learning was still present, I wasn't doing much generative work with it until... What was it? Google dropped deep dream out there for everyone to play with. And all of a sudden there was all this fun style transfer stuff popping up. And so I got in and started training some of those and experimenting with what was possible. And these days I've been doing all sorts of things, but versus creative projects, what I'm really doing is I'm just seeing what the limits of the tool are. Half the time I'm experimenting to see like, what does this thing do? And in the process, I create all number of things. I make up projects to test its capacities. I do that with every tool I use, but I don't think we've even begun to find the limits of these things. So I don't even want to define what I'm doing too much yet, other than exploring and experimenting. Other than fingers, right? Fingers. 
Right. Yeah. If we could get hands down <laughs> for now. and some eye, yeah. and the eyes to stop crossing, I would say, okay, I think we can do yeah. something. <laughs> Until then, it's all speculative, you know? James. Yeah. Well, hands are still hard to draw as a, you know, a visual artist, whether or not you're using technology. So it's, <laughs> it probably will be a little while. Yeah, we're all kind of eclectic here. So I've been transmedia artist, musician, and writer for, uh, depends on how you count it, but I guess about, about 20 years. Involved in a bunch of different media startups. You know, it's not like the first one was basically my friends and I out of college, you know, kind of starting our thing. And then actually took off for a little while, surprisingly. So technology has kind of always been a part of part of my artistic process. I kind of I came into music production right when digital kind of became a thing. And the same as somewhat true visual art. I mean, before Photoshop was really like, well adopted, I had kind of collaging and visual art by, you know, the old the old fashioned way as two different kind of tracks, you know. And then once Photoshop and Illustrator and all that kind of became part of it, mostly Photoshop, really, they gradually started to dovetail together, you know, and until kind of my process kind of integrated both those things in terms of like photo bashing and that stuff. And then, you know, also like traditional painting and mixed media, you know, I kind of see it all as like a means to an end. So the visualization, visualization apps like Midjourney seem somewhat familiar to me in a way, although, of course, what they're, you know, the results that are starting to be produced are seem light years beyond, you know, other generative processes, but it still, it feels very familiar to me in a way that it seems like I think some other artists don't necessarily have that experience of sort of like, oh, I know what to do with this. You know, at this stage, I mean, like you were saying, like it's happening, it's, it's moving so fast that it's very hard to predict where it'll be you know, even three months down the road, you know, because it's still in an experimental phase. Topher? My old friend. So uh, I've been drawing for as long as I can remember. And I was really inspired by cartoons and animation comics growing up. And then I studied graphic design and illustration at university and was doing fabrication design for theme parks and children's playgrounds for a while, which is what kind of introduced me to the 3D space and thinking more spatially. And, uh, and then for a while, I was very much into environmental interpretation and have since, to this day, have a lot of environmental conservation-oriented work. Around that time, I also got into performance work because I used to be a musician, but then I sort of integrated that understanding into using sort of visual instruments. So, you know, using a digital drawing Wacom tablet or a touchscreen and later VR to project onto musicians and dancers and stages, etc., and then uh, and then more recently, art directing VR experiences that are sort of in the digital therapeutic realm. Also, very much inspired, influenced by various types of of flow arts of movement and dance, and treating you know the page or the screen like a dance floor, improvising and, and using pareidolia to kind of find forms in the chaos. And so, and then also uh, almost two decades of like pretty dedicated dream work and uh, dream documentation as well. So using AI image generation, I actually, with the exception of like a few social media stories, I actually haven't published like any posts of what I've been doing with it because it's been part of a larger process that is sort of behind the scenes and it's never necessarily the end image, but it's actually part of the, an iterative process for bringing things along the way. I'll leave it at that. 
That leaves us with you, Micah. You're kind of an outlier here, and I appreciate that, I think. In what way? In the sense that, you know, I don't see you as a working professional artist. Like, you are a very playful, multimedia, exploratory type person. But you're somebody that seems like these new tools have really just allowed you to just step forward and rock out in a way that has completely astonished me and, and so many other people. Um, and, and really separates in my mind, there's like a, there's definitely like a breakwater point between this and like the stuff that you were doing before. I, I don't know, if, but I mean, here I am commenting on you before you know, I've allowed you to introduce yourself. So. Sure. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to know how you experience me. Yeah. My, my relationship to the label artist has been compl- complicated. I like, like everyone else here has been creating stuff like compulsively since I was a kid. I think it started actually for me when I was, I was like four years old and I broke my leg and I was in the hospital for the first few months of school. So all the kids were like meeting friends and like doing like social school things. And I, the only thing I had to do was read and draw. And I, I remember I like created this, like a storybook an illustrated storybook of a boy who broke his leg at the time. I didn't know I was doing like art therapy on myself, but I was. And like, from that point on, I I just always use art primarily as like an introverted processing tool. And it wasn't necessarily something that was like for other people. And I, I would like often get like in trouble in class because I'd be drawing instead of, you know, paying attention to the teacher, you know? Yeah. And at a certain point, I feel like my, my art got good enough to start sharing it. And then I became like known as an artist in school. And I like, you know, I got like the superlatives, like most artistic, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that I was going to be an artist. Like that's, that's where it seemed my life was going. I wasn't able to get into like a good art school. So I went to a state college and the art program sucked. And I basically like flunked out of my art classes because I, found them all really boring and at the time our philosophy program was really awesome i just like happened to stumble into a philosophy course and got really interested in like the ethics of emerging technology and ai and brain computer interfacing was like that like the first version of that was like being developed at that time so i kind of like made a break with art like i stopped drawing for probably like 10 years and it was like such a big part of my life, but I kind of like went into this like philosophical activist channel of my life and I became an activist and I I, like worked on nonprofits for a long time. But then this like creative part of me like kept getting tapped into as I was working on that stuff. And I essentially became like a full-time designer. I I have a design practice and I am, a I would say a like professional artist at this point, but my art is through design, brand design. I do like yeah, a, a variety of things within like creative professional label. But now with AI, it's kind of like the merging of like all these interests and I'm just fascinated by it. And there's a lot more that I can share about my relationship to it. But yeah, I, I feel like I've never had the patience. I've always been kind of ADHD. So I've never had the patience for all of the ideas that I have in my head. I have like a billion ideas and then I like grab one. And if I can't like get, get it finished, within 24 hours, I'm like onto the next one. And so I I, I have a trail of unfinished projects and 
I think that the most exciting thing to me about the AI stuff is the ability to churn out new ideas and get from like idea to finished product within less than an hour rather than it taking weeks and then, yeah, giving up on it. So that's me. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, I guess I should be, you know, I should be careful about, you know, how I talk about people, but like I, for instance, I no longer think of myself as a professional artist, you know, in that just, you know, in case, I don't know who's going to listen to this, but like, you know, my first contract actually to, to, to do art was to come up with mock-ups for horizontal format ad placements for Disney MGM studios, Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, because this is a vertical elevator drop ride that apparently no one at Disney, including the, the, the Imagineering could figure out how to like represent this on a billboard or a bus. And so my father who was working at Disney at the time said, I bet my son can because he draws all the time. And I gave them a four panel thing and they used all four panels. My dad gave me 120 bucks and I was 12 years old. And that's what started this meaning both the, you know, the idea that I could make art for money and also the recognition that I'm going to be horribly exploited by corporations You're because prepared. obviously, <laughs> like, you know, it's probably worth more than 120 bucks, even in 1994. So, but you know, like I was for 13 years after college, I, I was just piecemealing a career out of live painting and music performance and public speaking and science, you know, scientific illustration and contract illustration, you know, for whoever would have me, you know, merchandise design. And, and that's what brought me into the orbit of all of you fine people, you know, Micah, whom I met, while I was, I, I decided I was just going to hitch a ride out of Burning Man and backpack around San Francisco for a couple of weeks in 2008. And I, and I met you at the couch surfing mixer there with Troy Dayton and, you know, Topher I met through Art Outside Festival in Texas. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just like, but, you know, now I work in science communication and as a, I have a family and those days are behind me. And like, I, the only way I can paint now is if I have a, like a child with me painting, you know, often like on the same canvas as uh, like the only way I can make music is like waiting until they're asleep and then using my headphones and, you know, like ingesting things that I shouldn't to keep me up later than I should be that, you know, so that I, I, you know, I can carve out this time alone. And so the AI stuff has been really interesting for me because I feel that one, I, I really sympathize with you, Micah, in that the, the ADHD thing, I feel like, you know, working in social media has, has destroyed my single pointed focus. Like it has made me this sort of like avilokitis vara of, you know, like juggling 9 million things and, feeling like I can like legitimately track two conversations at the same time, but at the same time, also, also having to having, mm -hmm. having to, having to have a multi multifocal sort of life in that respect in, in order to get anything done. And, and then the other part is just, it's a matter of time 
and, and, and not being, you know, just we're, we're like, I think that the sort of the umbrella of this whole conversation is that this was the year that it really felt like that moment to, to get kind of Ian Malcolm about this, that moment in Pirates of the Caribbean, when you know you're about to go over the waterfall, you know, and you can feel it. You can feel the front of the boat is tipping. And I feel like that's where we are as, yeah. you know, technologically as a species right now. We are like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, it's like we're no longer trying to steer away from the falls. Now we're asking, you know, do we, you know, do we hold onto the boat? Do we need parachutes? Do we learn to fly? You know, what the fuck? is this all about? And so that's the question I have for all of you really. And, and you all just can just whoever, you know, popcorn this, but like how in your own lives, and then maybe like, how do you see generally people responding to this stuff? You know, like how do you see people adapting to it? And then how do, maybe also, how do you see people not adapting to it? Like, how do you see it like ruining people? too. And so that, you know, where are the, where are the potholes that we need to, we need to drive around? Can, can I interject here? Cause I have some thoughts about what you were just saying before you pose that question that kind of segue well into it. They might help frame it. So I found I, I could really relate to both Micah and Mike and yourself, Michael, when you were kind of, you know, negotiating with the word artist or professional artist or designer. And I found myself trading back and forth between those two taxonomic like little like which pigeonhole do I put myself in for somebody because I'm really in both I'm really in many I'm that I am also that many armed Avalokita Shavara and and so people want me to have that very simple business card title and I've never been that and I don't want to deny myself any of them I mean I barely play music ever anymore and I'm not getting up my musician title that's my like religion that's my truest sacred spiritual connection even if nobody ever hears me play another note of music again or I never touch another music I was a uh, music instrument I will still be a musician I'm not giving up that credential so you know, taxonomy matters because I've seen in terms of what potholes that people have hit, I've seen at least two places where the naming and phrasing around certain things has confused the public. And I deal in a lot of my work with the public becoming confused already about technology platforms that I work with because they're poorly understood by the general public. So like when in 2016, when we all started making 2017, you know, like style transfer, neural network based artwork, nobody was calling it AI art. Nobody used the term AI at all. We were like trying to come up. We're like, is it neural art? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm making images using this cool algorithm to do style transfer, but it definitely wasn't called AI art. And I've seen people respond badly to the term art being used because they're like, robots can't make art. Right. And they think there's just a basic flaw there that's called, you shouldn't even call it art because, the, and, because and there was AI a robot too. there. And then they say AI. And that's another taxonomic issue because most, most of the general public, when they hear the term AI, they're thinking AGI. They're thinking artificial general intelligence, a thinking machine. They're not thinking like a machine learning algorithm, which is basically most software these days. Like we're getting past halfway where ML machine learning is in everything. So even calling it AI is confusing to the public because they think there's another consciousness there and there isn't. We're not implying that that's, we should like take AI out of the, of the taxonomy because people think that that means there's a thinking robot and there is not. There's no sentient robot involved. You no, know? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's I my, that's my first offering. 
So Julian, oh, I'm sorry. I prefer to use generative arts, for example, or other terms that Same. aren't AI art. I, I'm curious what other language the rest of you sure. use that help to maybe demystify, but also clarify how your artistic and creative and curatorial and directorial eye informs your process now. Generative Absolutely. art definitely is a good one. I use that a lot, but I also t- I've been trying to use visualization app more when I'm specifically talking about mid journey or stable diffusion or any of those things, because, you know, because of the reasons that you gave it's it. And I think, I think it would react a little bit differently if it was like, you know, I'm creating something with a visualization app that I created it with AI and it's like, Oh, Terminator, you know, it's trying to take over a little you know, it's a very exactly. They're like, I use Skynet to make art. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's confusing. I, I tend towards generative art as well. That's my preferred term. But I like throwing some of the other technical terms in there because they're accurate, even if they haven't stuck. Like image synthesis is a perfectly accurate term technically to use for this. And I like saying diffusion. I want people to know this is diffusion. I like to mention latent space. Nobody's talking about latent space. And latent space was like the major pivotal point of this generation. It was how they used latent space. Everything else, the natural language processing and the diffusion were not that new. But the way they used it and the way they used latent space specifically is what was so new this time around. And words like style transfer have been done throughout our history. And so that can be a, a leveler for people to understand why style transfer modes and schools have become popular throughout time and that this may be just another school of art the way you know impressionism they were called impressionist as sort of a derogatory term at the time right so there's ways in which these sort of schools of art form generatively and 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 they have these emergent qualities the same way we're experiencing now Mm, a few things AI personally, and I think it's mostly because I just coming from like a brand strategy background, there's a certain acceptance of just like, that's, that's the brand now. Like there, there's no kind of like putting that back in the bottle. So, you know, maybe like I, I tend to, I think where I think, I don't, I don't think that we can put AI back in the bottle, but I think that where the like battle lines are right now around branding this stuff is around art and around, is it like AI assisted art? Is the, is the AI assisting me as the artist or is the AI the artist and I'm merely assisting it? I think that's the, that, that's the main debate right now. And what about AI design? Like if we, you mentioned the word design earlier, would people be less kind of up in arms if we said I'm using AI for design? Design possibly, craft. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I do use those words for two very distinct purposes. Like to me, art is a loosening process and design is a tightening process or a converging process. Design is about meeting needs through like well-designed products or brands or there's a strategy to it, let's say. Like design always has a like an outcome that you want. Whereas art is like, this thing is coming through me and I don't know what it wants to be, but I'm just gonna allow it to be, you know? And I think those are two different processes and people tend, like some people are artists and they're definitely not designers. I know plenty of those folks. Uh, some people, some of my design peers are not artists at all. They, they don't know where to start if they're not given some kind of like goal or need or something. And, and then there are people who kind of cross the chasm. So one thing I've, I didn't mention in my intro is that I'm now using generative AI art in my design practice, which, which is interesting. And it, it is very different than what I'm doing with my like weird AI art 
experiments. It's yeah, I could go into more of how that looks different, but I think it's it's actually pretty distinct. So that's yeah, that's relatable. I here, Micah, you actually had a thread about that specific distinction. I don't remember a couple of months ago on Facebook, and if you can dig up the link, I'd love to post that in the show notes. Talking about art versus design, and you know the the you know, like dilating versus constricting sort of piece of it, which I think they're the elephant. One of the one of the people like the lights on my shoulder in this conversation. It's the first person I was able to wrangle into a conversation on AI art about this stuff it was JF Martell. When I had Jim Rutt invited me onto uh, uh, his show, and I said, "Well, you can't have me on the show without Jim, without without JF, because JF wrote this amazing book, Art in the Age of Artifice, or Recla Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, in which he makes a very similar kind of distinction. It, it rhymes with your own distinction a lot, where he's saying that you know that that artifice is basically the the use of technique to achieve a like a desired result in the mind of the." And it's interesting how that, you know, how that syncs up with someone who I asked to talk about these things with, but I have not heard back from, perhaps unsurprisingly, who is Alex Gray, whose book, The Mission of Art, really changed the way that I make art, changed the way that I think about what I do when I, as a creator, in that, you know, Alex was saying, well, you, you know, you have this, this imprint, this like holographic signature of yourself, you know, that is put into the work and then is transmitted like in a Buddhist, it's like a direct transmission into the, 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 whoever beholds the work. And so, you know, in a way, like even unintentionally, you are creating a kind of singular experience in someone who, you know, even unwittingly, I remember Robert Venosa said something, you know, maybe, you know, 13 years ago in an interview on reality sandwich back when it was still, you know, you know, like legit saying, yeah. uh, about this, you know, saying that, you know, he felt that even if no one had ever had no idea what he was working with, had, had no, had not had a psychedelic experience that his work was kind of dangerous because it was, it was going to induce in them something transformative. And so, you know, it's interesting, you know, to think uh, it, it, maybe this, and this is not where I expected this conversation to go, but like, it does kind of make me wonder about, even JF will say that this is not a strict binary, you know, because obviously whatever we intend for something that we create to be, it's going to find affordances or people like, like William Gibson said, the street finds its own uses, right? You know, like people will take it up and repurpose it for unintended yeah. you know, uh, stuff. And so, yeah, like, and, and then if it, it, the, the same as, the same is true for like, you know, even like the, like the bio accumulate post-human turn on design, which is that, you know, like even with design, we don't really, you know, where does the intention for the, a design come from? You know, it's almost a critique of free will in that, like it's, you know, we are just sort of this interference pattern of environmental influences. And it's going so. to be like a process of back and forth. I mean, even if you're working yourself like alone in a room at least mentally i feel like it's very much a sort of process of sort of being you know putting yourself in different perspectives and, and playing the role of different people if there's no one else to work with i like working with collaborators in different mediums but you know if i don't have something to collaborate with i'll do it with myself right <laughs> i think i think i mean that is one way to think about ai although of course 
as we've also discussed, it's better not to think about it as having agency of its own. Because it's not accurate, it's more like cloud formation or crystallization or something like that, like a natural process that you're participating in to some extent. And a fascinating one. I mean, when I think about what what ultimately these diffusion clouds are, they're like mathematical averages, you know, they're really impossible to anticipate in, in many respects. So I, I'm with you on the cloud formation or crystallization. They're definitely a different kind of math than we're used to seeing. So it's hard to talk about them in a, in a frame that is that is really coherent. I mean, even photo bashing or any of the ways we've interacted digitally with images in the past, they really fall short of what's going on here. And, you know, I, I feel like I have to get long-winded with the public to try and put an accurate picture in their mind of what's happening behind the scenes or under the hood. And that's why I think the taxonomy, you know, is so important, you know, how do we talk about the tools we're using and, and what they are, because it's hard for, you know, it's hard for people to understand what's happening under the hood with most modern technology products. So you really do need to frame very carefully for them. And when the public, you know, imagination gets captured by something and we end up with everybody's calling it AI art and we have to deal with the fact that more than 50 percent of the people that hear that term, they're going to think that there's a consciousness there. They think when you say AI, they think the sci-fi concept of AI. They think how, you know, make me so make me a painting, please, how. And uh, that's that's just not what's happening. So I don't know. They're also the thing that's in the sense that like that the corporations that are in a lot of cases, not even a corporation, it's actually a research lab, but like. The perspective is that there are these giant corporations that are already very involved in this process, and they are doing beta testing on a lot of big corporations right now, but like, there isn't a big offering yet. So there isn't, like, it's kind of like, I mean, I think it's important to look at the ways that this can be used. We'll get, used, get into that a little bit, but, like, it's kind of jumping the gun a little bit to talk about the evil machine, you know, the evil empire that's already, like, trying to destroy art with AI when it's, like, you know, it's like a research lab with 11 people, an open source project, you know, they have some VC offerings, but it's still like in the business world. It's not, you know, people are kind of still still in early testing, which is crazy to think about. But <laughs> and it's it's paired programming. We've done paired programming for decades. Now we are just doing human AI paired programming in chat, in video, in imagery across the board, having our tools, you know, sort of effectively trained to work with us, it makes us all better, ideally. Not every tool is trained to do that, but if you're working well to create the tool that you need to do the work you're creating, you know, like refining your artist brushes or your sculptor tools the same way an artisan would have done throughout time. You know, the, I, I love the, 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 not just the fluidity, but the way in which each of us has learned to sort of shape our toolkit to work with our vision and to work with the kinds of things that we want to be generating and creating moving forward. Even if that's at the edge of open source or at the edge of what tooling is currently providing. You know, we're learning to bring all of these tools together, maybe experiment and try new things, and then invite other people to participate in that process. I think some of you are really great at getting a ball rolling or like playing a great jazz riff that everyone else wants to riff on. And and that to me, it's, that's the joy, the the riffing, right? The jazz of it. It's exciting. Yeah. And, and some of them are, are created in a way where you can actually you know, work as a group where you're kind of tossing those visual ideas back and forth and you know, doing right? upscales that renders off of the same idea, like in the same shared chat space or whatever, which is really pretty cool. Well, yeah, and I started hosting salons and doing galleries for the same reason, right? Inviting people in to play together or to do concept work together 
or just to explore and try new things together too. Tover? Yeah, there's a framing I've been using a lot lately is language-driven image generation. Because when I when I think of, let's say, generative art by itself, I mean, for a while I've been using something like Blender, say, and using the node system in there to do generative work, but it's a very different process than uh, Midjourney or Dolly or something. Or even, you know, there's there's other types of non non-digital, non-machine learning, algorithm-based types of generative work, like a, a harmonograph, you know, having a pendulum with a pencil and just like letting it go and then it'll generate, you know, forms. And so that including language into that, I think helps to clarify a bit. I, I like that. And I'm also, I'm excited about increasingly which not being the primary prompt. Like, you know, I've been, I've been using image prompts in my mid journey creations and now increasingly photo bashing and like just creating sketches or like doing a quick photo bash as an input of something that I want to see. And then using like very, very minimal stylistic like words mm. as prompts. And I'm so excited yeah. about the day where I can draw on my iPad and it starts to fill it out. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm just ta- I'm sketching and I'm just talking to the AI and I'm saying, Hey, can you shade this? in a black and white half tone motif or something. And as I draw it, you know, my long yes. forms. Yeah. Um, have you used VizCom? What was that? Have you used VizCom? I don't think so, but there are so yeah. many tools right now. I, I may have. V-I-Z-C-O-M. That's something that's being used in, for example, the automobile and product design industry where you doodle and you can also have a text prompt and it will you know, generate like more complete renders in real time. Son of a bitch. Yeah. This is exactly what you were just talking about. <laughs> like, yeah. This is the problem with this. Like this is the world. Again, another William Gibson thing is like the future is, is already here. It's just distributed unevenly. It's just like, you know, all of us think it's like there's, we're on a frontier, but it's this N dimensional manifold. And we're just like, Oh, Oh, that thing. Oh, it's here now, which is the thing that like, and so, I mean, maybe this is actually a kind of a more pressing question because, you know, somebody actually posted this, this precise question to the Future Fossils Facebook group, which to me suggests that they've never actually listened to a live recording of one of my shows. Because every time I play the song Life Finds a Way, I talk about the idea that, like, you're going to be dreaming with a headband on and you're going to wake up with your dreams 3D printed in the room with you. So you're going to have to, like, you know, Topher, I mean, to your, to your dream practice specifically, and I hope that we one day get a one-on-one and we have a whole episode with you about this stuff, but like, you know, the, the notion that like in, in Michael Crichton's totally underappreciated novel sphere, where like everyone develops these powers to just manifest whatever they're thinking. And then at the end of the novel, they decide that they're, they don't like it. And that they're going to manifest the reality in which they forget that they have these powers and their brains don't do this anymore. And I think that, you know, like this is, I mean, it's sort of like Wonder Woman 1984, which I brought up in the, the panel I did with EFF Austin a few episodes ago, where it's like, you know, there's, there is a line where our ability to create things just by thinking about them immediately and to have them become physical objects, like there has to be a threshold. Like there has to be either like a firewall so that we're not just like ideating suicide and then accidentally killing ourselves 
or there has to be, you know, there has to be some sort of economic constraint. That, that's what the big, big red button is for. Yeah, right. <laughs> or like, oh yeah, that's the, the 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 meme of the guy. Which which big red button do I push? So right. yeah, I mean, so this is you know that's a that's a, an interesting question to pose to you all, which is sort of like at what point do you actually find that it no, it's no longer fun, right? Or like you know at what point does this become? Because because I, and I need to bring this guy into the conversation, Stephen Zapata, who's an illustrator on on YouTube and and yep. Patreon, and, and posted this very long critique of AI artwork that I will share in the show notes. And I think the most important of his critiques, in my opinion, is the critique that he made that rhymes with something, you know, that Herbert Simon said in, in 1971, it said, thanks to Richard Doyle for turning me onto this. I use it in my email signature at SFI. He said, information consumes attention. And so a world that is saturated with information is a world in which people are impoverished with their attention. And so, you know, Zapata's critique was that it's going to become so easy to make art that no one will be able to actually get anyone to look at art. And I think that that's like that, you know, in a, or like it's already the case that, you know, we live in a world where social media, everyone is shouting and no one's really listening in a way, you know, or it's like, I mean, just partially because of the algorithms, that's a whole other thing. Right, right. Yeah. And, I, and to be fair, like, what is it, 99% of people on social media are just lurking, reading other people's posts. But, like, yeah. it's but at the same time, it, it, it really ha it's obvious to everyone, I think, that the, the competition for attention has become the primary thing because it is the one thing that we don't know how to scale with digital media. And so, yeah, I'm just going to like lay that all out before you and, and I hope you all will riff on that. I, I think that the part of that concern I, I, I share as well. I think it's more about, you know, it'll increase the perception that art is easy. It won't make art easier. At least not, it won't make it easier to make quote unquote good art, whatever the hell that is. But, you know, it, it'll make it seem easier and that'll have effects. It'll have downstream effects, certainly. I don't think it'll make people want to stop looking at it. At least so far in human history, that hasn't happened. It would certainly be a first, you know, people would say, okay, I'm, you know, I've done no more images for me ever again. I don't want to look at anything, you know. But, well, I think it's it's less that they would want to stop looking at it and more what we already see happening with, let's say, all the streaming networks. Like when I was younger, movies were this magical place that stories went to be revered. And now it feels like it all just kind of washes right off. It's like you have this deluge of like a fire hose of media coming at you and it's all really high quality. The shows on all the streaming networks are great, you know, better than old TV quality. And yet you know, none of it really sticks. Like, and we've gotten even mm -hmm. pickier about, you know, we're like, oh no, this particular Lord of the Rings wasn't convincing enough. And that particular Game of Thrones, I didn't like the wigs. And so we'll just throw the whole thing away, even though it was probably the most convincing, you know, period piece anybody has seen for 10 years or whatever. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, I experienced this, I'm in, in Miami right now for Art Basel. And I've said many years during Art Basel, like that the worst thing about Art Basel is that it's too much great art at the same time. So you don't really have any time to just sit with one piece and be like, this mm -hmm. is amazing. I'm going to sit here. I remember doing that at the Louvre, you know, or places where they have these giant epic pieces of work. I would just sit down and stare and have a special moment with that work. And when you're, when you're completely saturated in it and overwhelmed with media stimulation, it, you just don't have the bandwidth to do that with like, you might not even hear a, a song all the way through because you're busy and you got to your destination. You don't have time to sit in your car and listen to the rest of the song. You got to go. 
And so that's what I worry. Not that people will stop paying attention to art, but that it'll just be so everywhere. They'll start tuning it out even more by necessity. Yeah. I, I definitely respect that concern and, and I feel it as well of just not just the deluge of art, but the deluge of information and, and everything that we're dealing with on the cusp of the singularity or whatever this is. But I think like, <laughs> I think it's not a bad problem if, if the problem we're dealing with is that like more people are creating art and the more, the world is a more beautiful place. And, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's the burning man problem, right? There's like too many things to experience. And so you get overwhelmed and you're like, I, I only scratch the surface of everything that's out there, but it's like not a bad problem to have. You just got to work on your own FOMO and your own like filters and your own relationship to it. I think, I think Zapata was really right about a lot of things. I'm not, I'm not super concerned about this concern. I'm concerned about owner who owns this stuff. Is it ethical to, for these for-profit private companies to be making huge loads of money off of data sets that have been, you know, grabbed by other artists? I don't think that's a very, that's an easy answer, but I think that those questions are like really important. So I think those are. Those are the, the things I'm concerned about. Like it's, it's all the stuff where like we can't have nice things because capitalism, right? Like I would love to be living in a world where people are just creating like art generating machines and like that's the, that's filtering all of the amazing art is the hardest thing we have to deal with. But right now we have to deal with like how are artists going to get paid? Because now what, what has happened to every other industry where, you know, those who have the the tech to be able to automate it are basically scooping up all the value and the money from that, that's now happening to art. And I I worry about that a lot. I think it's I, I was like really impressed by Kevin Kelly's article about AI art in Wired. I think he made a like a lot of really good framing decisions about how to talk about AI art. But I think he got this wrong. I think that he, he kind of like hand waved it away and he's like, oh it's not a big deal. But I'm I'm deeply concerned about it. Um, Kevin really, Kelly sorry. does that. That's like he's built his entire <laughs> career. I, I took him to task on this the last time I spoke with him. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, okay. Sorry. It's a it's a really complicated. I mean, I think there is definitely concern about corporate ownership, and here's like that's there's cause for concern there. But it's it's hard to talk about because there's so many sort of sides to it. I mean, one thing I do wonder oftentimes is, like I said, like what corporations exactly are they concerned about right now? You know, you know, versus you know, corporations we worry about in five years. You know, Disney, you know, but like right now, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I've, I've listened to the journeys, you know, like developer talks and whatnot. I don't know them that well, so maybe there's like nefarious things going on. I don't know about, but they seem to be like a pretty small like, research group. That's, you know, like I mean, they seem to be making enough to like you know grow, but it's not like this big money making scheme. You know. In- in my experience, that's how every startup sounds. Yes, that's what I'm, right. that's what I'm saying. It's like right now, yeah. I know I realize it's saying that right now, you know, we don't know what's going to happen when a billion dollars is dropping from their face, but right. yeah. At a certain point, the company grows beyond the founder's ability to rescue it from the Moloch beast that is capitalism <laughs> and all of the like bad incentives and stuff, right? And so sure. it doesn't really matter or someone if else the founders are good people or bad people. It's, it's going to turn into a profit-maximizing machine. If it's set up in that way, and I, I do have friends that are working on this. I want to give a shout out to my friend Derek, who's working on a, a project called Purpose, and it's basically helping startup founders to create basically like the corporate structure that is in line with their values, 
the corporate structure and investment structure so that it doesn't end up turning into a monster. I, I don't actually know if that's possible, but at least people are working <laughs> on it. But I think that that's where you solve these things. You don't solve them on the level of like the technology itself or having conversations about the technology. It's like, you've got to actually like fix the problem at the capitalism level. Sure. Time to get started about like the sale of information. It's probably like 20 or 10 years ago, you know, of cookies and social media and everything else. We've been selling our information for quite a long time, but does anyone else find it hard to hear James? Oh, sorry. You're you're quiet, but we'll fix it in post. The, The, so the question yeah, and I, I want to double down on this with you all because I think that, you know, most of the time when I hear people talking about this stuff, um, the people that have the greatest problem with it fall into, like, it seems to me one of either two camps. And actually, Micah, I'm totally going to link to your your AI art menagerie of people using AI art because I feel like oh, yeah, really, yeah. they, they, they <laughs> pegged all of us in this in some way. <laughs> but, like, you know, there's the people that generally fear change, you know, again, you know, to event, you, you brought up Kevin Kelly, there's Stuart Brand who said, you know, when, when, when progress happens too fast, then people call it, you know, change and they ask it to stop. He said, you know, in his book, the clock of the long now. And I think that's accurate. You know, other people have said that technology is just whatever was invented, like basically like since you grew up, you know, and you don't recognize the, all of the other, like the mountain of technologies that you're standing on. And you just think of that as just part of, you know, the human experience, but it's not in the same way that all of us think of the atmosphere that we breathe as just like this thing that's always been here, but it hasn't been this way. Like, you know, it was, it was, it was fabricated by living organisms hundreds of millions of years ago. And so like there was a time when you could go back to earth and there were things living on earth, but you, you'd have to wear a spacesuit. And so, you know, like, but the question is not, you know, is how is that? It's how fast is that happening, right? And and are we within the window in which we can actually evolve to to keep pace with it, or is it just, you know, is it is it beyond our ability to do so? So there's people with that that concern, but then there's like this other thing which is that, and you know, generally people just fearing strangeness, fear, fear, fearing otherness, you know. And I feel like those people, you know, all of you have spoken earlier to, to that and to, you know, how do we talk about this in a way that makes, that creates more affordances for people to kind of like understand that this isn't necessarily, at least in its current formulation, radically different from what has come before. But then there are these other people that are looking at it purely in terms of the creative economy. And, you know, the, the thing that, I think empowers me to just enjoy these tools, frankly, is the fact that I'm not making art for a living. You know, I think that when I look at this and, and, and I know, you know, basically all of us have had, had this conversation in one form or another on social media at some point, but like, it seems as though you cannot talk about what a world saturated with AI artwork looks like without like, it's, it's, we have, <laughs> To another Lord of the Rings references, like, you know, the orcs have uh, penetrated Helm's Deep at this point, right? Like there is, we have finally reached the point that most people even two or five years ago never thought was going to happen. And so the, the whole question of what is the end point of automation? 
when we're talking about things like, you know, Milton Keynes and the 1930 essay, you know, economic prospects for our grandchildren and people wanted automation to be this thing that liberated human beings into a life of, of leisure and creativity and, and exploration and like, you know, Star Trek style. But one of the weird things about Star Trek is, is that, you know, they don't, they don't adequately explain the post scarcity economics of that whole situation. And so like, you know, we, we see this and we see that. And then the other fork in the road is like, you know, the road, you know, Cormac McCarthy. It's just like total <laughs> desperate misery and despair. And so, you know, I mean, obviously if an organism gets big enough at some point, it can't just expect nutrients to diffuse through it passively. It needs to create a heart. It needs to pump blood. And so people like Brian Arthur back in his McKinsey essay in 2017, were saying that we need, we absolutely need UBI beyond a certain point with automation. But, you know, it's like how much of the organism has to die from asphyxiation before a heart will evolve. And like, can we evolve a heart fast enough? These are the kinds of questions that I have for you. And I'm, I'm curious what you all think about this stuff. So I was just having a conversation about how you, it's almost impossible to have a conversation about AI without talking about UBI. <laughs> for that very reason, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a tough one, though, in terms of speculation, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I was just reading a meme about an hour ago that Sophie Strand posted with a bunch of, and it was basically someone saying, we can't decolonize everything, y'all. Something's just got to die or burn. And so, you know, I think, yes, that, you know, the, what you were saying earlier that the future is already here is just not evenly distributed. I think a lot of really great things are going, have become possible, are possible now and have been going. I don't think everyone's going to get to, you know, enjoy the progress. I don't think it's going to work for everyone. And I don't think it should. I don't think it's a better world that it works for everyone or that everyone has the same result. I think diversity is ultimately messy and that there that in order for this to move forward which it's not going to stop we can't put the the genie back in the bottle there there are going to be mistakes there will be industries and things that will be disrupted that will have negative effects and there will be disruptions that have positive effects like it's not it's not ever going to land at an all black or all white conclusion like the the fork in the road is there's just more than one fork more than one road and a lot of them are going to happen at the same time to different people in the same places I know that's not much of an answer because I'm kind of saying everything, but I, I do think it's, it's going to be like that. It's going to be a bit of a everything all at once. Yeah. A jackpot, you know, for, as the peripheral likes to call it, like just a <laughs> bunch of things happening at the same time that don't really, they converge in ways that we, we would never be able to effectively anticipate, you know, and we can just hope that we can respond to them effectively. There was some really interesting singularity fiction in a, in a, collection of short stories by Ken Liu recently that covered a, very extensively a lot of like singularity stories and, and AI and transhumanism kind of crossover into the digital. And there's just, you're not going to have one mass reaction. You're going to have a bunch of different reactions and a bunch of people dealing in different ways mm-hmm. and, and, you know, changing their mind midstream being like, no, I'm against it. I'm against it. Actually. Okay. Let's try it. You know, like that. So it's, I don't know. I wish I wish I could get ahead of it mentally, but I've I think I've stopped trying. I think I'm just trying to stay tuned. It's moving so fast. Just, just, just stay on the surfboard. Yeah, exactly. It can feed that which wants to be both fluid and plural. 
in the human. So being able to create all of these personas and identities that let us play out all of those creative ideas, that's very empowering in a place where you can't do that any other way, right? And we've seen this for the last 20 years, but we're seeing it show up in new ways. When I went to speak at the World Government Summit, we talked about identity and plurality and and the rub between, you know, wanting to control this, right? It's command and control dynamics that are crumbling. It's capitalism that's crumbling. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with capitalism crumbling because everyone recognizes that they have creative power again, you know? Like, I'm okay with letting that old world die so that we can create something better from that. So far as visualization apps are concerned, I'm I'm with you. I feel like my greater concerns about AI are are in in other fields than than the arts. (laughs) In terms of, you know, weapon systems and biotechnology, that sort of thing. There's also great things that can be done with it. But, you know, I mean, as much as I've committed my life to being an artist, but nevertheless, like, you know, compared to, like, climate change or, like, you know, all the nukes being launched, that sort of situation, like, you know, it's, it's just a picture. <laughs> I know we crucified for that. <laughs> I, would, I would hope we would use our tools effectively to help simulate and, and then plan our cities effectively for climate before, you know, Miami is underwater, sure. for example. And, yeah, AI could help with that, too. Yeah, it's true. Yes, but it has been hard to get people to fund those sorts of initiatives. Mm-hmm. I think up until this point, people couldn't see how AI was going to inform a process. And I think that is the sort of tidal shift we've seen this year for people. Like, get it now. Yeah. Some do. Some. Yeah, I've got to, I got to admit that there's, speaking of surfing, I think that's an app, app metaphor to like surf the edge of this. And, you know, also I, I surf between being artist and quote unquote designer to and work in both of those spaces. And uh, yeah, there's times I definitely experience on and off. And I'm, I've been feeling it again recently, like what I would call novelty fatigue and I've been tracking a lot of this stuff for a while and it's with a few exceptions, it's hard for me to really, at least at this point, like really find like other people's work extremely interesting and deep. I'm again, I'm exposing myself to a lot of, of different use cases constantly. And there's a few things that are catching my attention, but most of it is just like bouncing off of me and and it feels a little exhausting now that like the the rate at which you know the usage and accessibility of this is is just like happening more exponentially and seems to like that that will continue to be the case whereas like a total contrast to that i remember going to a seismic in houston texas it's kind of like an immersive art installation similar to malwell and there was there was one piece that really got my attention there by a muralist, Erica Raven. And it was a long hallway, really tall mural. And the the light, the LED lights were slowly shifting color very subtly. And there was this ambient music playing. And she had painted it with inks, like different, like red and blue inks. And so certain inks would appear at times with the light and disappear with others. And then they would all come together, et cetera very slowly shifting. And we just sat on that chair. And I mean, we were there for, I don't know, 20 minutes to half an hour, fascinated by this, this image that was transforming before us. And uh, again, I've been awed and floored by different pieces of, you know, quote unquote, AI assisted work 
so far, but like nothing is like stopped me in my tracks to just like gawk for half an hour. And it, another thing that, that comes to mind that I, I haven't seen as much when it comes to critique is I've been, I've been feeling that there's a, I'm, I'm curious about what could be lost with the disincentive, disincentivation of the process of creativity. And I'm, I'm speaking very much from personal experience here in regards to going into a flow state with the work. You know, I, I approach drawing like a dance. It's a, it's a process of discovery and there are mistakes that are made along the way. And there are a lot of happy accidents that happen, but there's, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a, a big part is about the, the process itself. And sometimes like committing to that process, even if there's no knowledge of what that end product is going to be, lots of surprises along the way. And I've, you know, personally found a lot of meaning making through that, that dance and that kind of like surfing of the creative process. I know that, you know, similar concerns have been voiced by David McKean and Android Jones about this as well in regards to, like David McKean mentioned, the process of taking a walk and we don't take a walk to like, bam, get to the other, at the other place immediately. But there's this, there's a meandering, there's a discovery along the way. And, and not that, you know, when it comes to like art therapy, not that AI can't be used for art therapy, but specifically the, like the physiologically embodied process of engaging with, you know, a work, even if, you know, it doesn't, doesn't even need to be professional but totally private, you know, a concern I have is like the disincentivization of people even wanting to learn how to draw and stumbling across something that could actually like save their life or bring them to tears unexpectedly, because that's what it's done for me. So that was a tangent, but just wanted to put that out there. I want to speak to that directly because I, you know, this week is you know, just to like timestamp this episode. This is the week that everyone on Facebook was sharing their Lenza selfies. Yeah. Right? And I, I went ahead and I, I made a bunch of my wife, which, you know, I knew I had her consent and it was going to be a gift kind of thing. So I, I, I went and I, 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 I trained the algorithm on specific batches, like one, batch based on, you know, the first 10 years of our relationship. And then one of just the few years right before she became a mother. And like, I'm going to do a third, which is like her as a, you know, like the images, the most recent images of her. And they're, they're, it's, it's interesting how different they are. But at any rate, like one of the things that I noticed was that very early in our relationship, and I still have this picture, I, 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 drew, I, I made a pencil drawing of her sitting at a piano and, you know, the, the, the process of like referencing her and like studying her face and like really attending to her in that way, you know, it was, it was awesome and beautiful and inspiring to see all these images that were coughed up by this algorithm. But I definitely felt dissociated from exactly that thing that you're talking about, you know, the, the, the Dave McKean walk of like, and uh, this morning, my daughter asked me to draw her on our little dry erase board. And so I, I, re I realized I was drawing my daughter for the first time in probably two or three years. And that this was, you know, this is a thing that I've fallen out of habit of doing is like 
you know, actually like life drawing and, and, you know, portraiture and drawing people's faces. And, you know, my wife said something when we were talking about this very issue this morning, she said something to the effect of, it's going to be like cursive, huh? You know, like it's going to be a thing that like, it's a dying language, you know, like it's not that like, to, you know, to bring Kevin Kelly back up in a, in a good way, you know, Kevin makes the point that, that, you know, the expanding space of technological possibility seems to in general preserve everything that has come before. There are still people, I know you, Topher, you and I both know, you know, James Herman Stroud in, 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 in Texas who naps Flint. The dude is practicing a million year old art form still, you know, and selling Flint napped goodies. And so like, you know, that exists, but like, like Flint napping was a thing that, you know, everyone knew someone who napped Flint back in the day. And now like, I know probably, you know, hundred people that know the same guy who naps Flint, you know? And so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's probably some of that. I think I agree with Kevin there in general. Like I, I, with the exception of all of the, the ugly stuff that comes with like the capitalism layer of progress and all of that, yeah, stuff that we will never solve if we talk about it for hours and hours. Setting that aside, generally I'm in favor of more, more progress, the better, because it doesn't, it doesn't actually limit what we can do. It just increases the possibility space. So yeah, I flew to, I flew to Mexico a month ago. If I had had to walk, walk here, I would have ne- never made it. It would have taken me a really long time. I'm glad that I can be here now, but I still take a walk every day because a walk is like good for my mental health. And there are things that you see on walks that you don't see in a car or an airplane, right? So I like the expanding possibility space and I will continue to draw the old fashioned way. I do think that you're right that fewer people will learn to draw as a kid because of this technology. And that is kind of sad. I think we need to mourn something anytime there's a new, there's new progress, right? There's something that is a trade off, but overall I would say I am like, I am so excited for a five-year-old kid like the, the five-year-old me who had that idea of the story of the, you know, kid breaking his leg that was my art therapy when I was that age, that turning into a, my own personal Pixar movie that I share with my family and friends. Like, that is so cool, and I can't wait for that. And, uh, yeah, there will be as many Pixar films as there are kids, and, like, that's that's something to deal with. But also, I think it'll just be, it'll be a long tail. There will always be some that burst through and tell a common story that resonates with everyone. And I, I, I hear you, Topher, on like not seeing yet the stuff that moves you from this. And I think that's to be expected. Like it took a while before someone used a camera to create, you know, Ansel Adams like photogra- photographs or after like the development of film, like it took a while before like you know, Kubrick came on the scene and like did something like super masterful with it, right? Not that Kubrick was the first or Adams was the first, but these are just examples of like maestros that didn't have their tool and then got their tool and then had to work in community to figure out the best practices before they could become the like the 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 maestro that they are. 
And I think that's what's happening right now. Like we're all part of that process of figuring out what these tools can do. And I think within the next few years, we will, like, I will be absolutely moved to tears by something that somebody creates with AI. And, you know, maybe one of us will be one of those people. Maybe not. But, like, I'm I'm excited that, so I didn't mention this, but this, uh, this T-shirt is AI. I, right before I left on my trip, I custom printed a, a few AI designs to, to wear. And I love that, like, I have a personalized, like, piece of art that I made with the help of this stuff on my body. And so I don't need to be the Kubrick of AI as long as, like, I'm scratching an itch with it, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I have a duffel bag that's my art and a dress that's my art. So when I travel and then when I give gifts now, it becomes this much more personal way of giving. So mm-hmm. I've, I've probably given out 30 files as gifts in the last week. And now I have friends coming and asking for, Hey, can we do a commission so that my friend can have this thing? That's like a kimono or a puzzle, or it's amazing what people are coming up with and seeing as things they want in their lives that might be practical and not just art on the wall, sure. which makes me really happy. It's accessible. You know, it's not something that feels like fine art or that it's just for elite people. It's something that everyone can get around and use. It's also not, not all or nothing, right? Like, I mean, like a personally, I mostly use currently use AI, like as a comping tool or for thumbnailing, that sort of thing. But, you know, it's not, totally. like, I'm still painting, you know, I'm still using my hands to, to paint. So I'm still doing that process. It's just kind of making thumbnailing a lot faster and giving you more options to look at. Can I yeah. ask a, a question that we we touched on just very briefly in passing, and I think it deserves more attention, which is this larger problem that also, again, Stephen Zapata talked about in his his critique that is about the, you know, the, there's a difference, a huge difference between stable diffusion for visual art and dance diffusion for music. And that difference is that, that, Stability AI, the organization, was very careful only to use music in the public domain to trans to you know to train that algorithm, and yet the you know the scraping of billions of images to train the the visual algorithm was completely reckless and and unbounded, and there has been you know anyone listening to this I'm sure has seen at least one artist who found out that their name actually pinged a, you know, a, a totally obvious, like, Oh, my work was used to train this thing. Mine was not hilariously. I feel like, I feel like I, I, I was left out. Yeah. Left out of the <laughs> records. Yes. Right. You know, in some way, like it's clear, I've been trying in, immensely hard to, to do this and it's not delivering recognizable Michael Garfield stuff. So like in a way that it's like, it's kind of cool, but, you know, like you, you, there's a, there's a blessing and a curse to falling through the cracks, right? Like lack of visibility is good if you don't want to get caught committing a crime. It's bad if you're trying to get welfare, right? And so, you know, these, these things, when I think about AI and I've had this conversation with, with folks at SFI, actually, yeah, like very recently I had this conversation about, you know, the, the question of, you know, consent in uploading basically because there's this fantastic science fiction story lena 
by Quantum. I don't, I don't, it's a pseudonymous author, but this was a story that let, that inspired one of my favorite science fiction novels, Accelerando by Charles Strauss, which was largely about, you know, this question of, you know, unauthorized duplicates of people. And, you know, this, this question of like, what happens if you're, you know, you're the, the, in Lena, the, you know, for, for people, Lena is the, I forget her whole name, but the, the name of the Swedish model whose face was used for, for Kodachrome, you know, photo, you know, color testing. And she never consented to having her, this shot of her from like Playboy 1973 or whatever duplicated indefinitely for this stuff. But now it's like, that's, that is the, the, the test kit that's being used for all of this stuff. And, you know, similarly, like Greg Rakowski, you know, Roger Dean, these people that are historically, you know, very averse to getting ripped off and again, concerned about their livelihood as artists. I mean, you know, it's funny to me that the, you know, Avatar 2 is coming out right, you know, in just a couple of weeks and that there is that notorious lawsuit that Roger Dean leveled at James Cameron for ripping off like shot by shot his own album artwork for Yes and Journey for the Avatar films. And now people are like going into mid journey and like making like, Oh, I want to do me as a Navi, you know? And so there's like this weird circularity to it all. But I mean, ultimately it does get, I mean, even if we don't get to the point like they did in Lena where, you know, the, the duplicate of you online has its own ex- subjectivity and experience. And you're, you're creating a literal hell state for this, you know, these uploads that are like having to, you know, wake up and find themselves disoriented as, you know, a digital software object over and over and over again. There are these questions about, you know, how this is going to change the way that we think about likeness rights. And like, obviously the art intellectual property model now is deeply, deeply flawed. We talk about that on Future Fossils all the time. But where do you see the new equilibrium? I mean, and you've already said, we're going to take this, we're going to run with this in every possible direction. Okay, but their new norms have to emerge around this stuff and new regulations are going to have to emerge around this and everyone knows it. So like, where do you all see that flowing? Hmm. The concern, the concern I have is like something like a company like Disney, you know, looking to own the, you know, the rights to an artist, to an actor, to like a star, you know, where it's like a couple of movies have actually kind of, play with this idea, you know, where they, you know, they own your digital version, your digital likeness, and you can go off and fuck off to why, whatever, just do your thing, right? But like, <laughs> you know, that digital version is going to be acting or whatever on the screen, you know, who, that, that's where I'd be particularly concerned about, you know, like that sort of issue. So the movie, The Congress, for example. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. 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 Saying, Ab- absolutely. But I think we're going to also end up with something more like where the music industry is, where you can have a hundred authors on one song. And as we begin to really look at the whole lineage of a body of work, you may have micropayments and and a different way of dealing with attribution as well. How much of that will end up in the metadata, I think, is where policy and, and, and the creative industry are going to start to rub, especially in the coming years. It gets the sense that, you know, the, the policies of how attribution are dealt with are currently not standardized around the globe either. And the next decade 
is where most of that is going to be decided, not just in, in the EU, where data policies are much clearer about attribution. In the US, we just don't really have a clear lineage of attribution when it comes to metadata. I don't think metadata is going to look the same a decade from now as it does now when it comes to tracking all of the creators that might have contributed to a process. So this actually gets to, you know, I mean, another Kevin Kelly thing that he talked about in The Inevitable, which was this idea that we're going to be able to have like garage automobile manufacturers where, you know, I mean, and he he didn't, I, I can't remember whether he did or did not explicitly invoke the blockchain. But Julian, you and I have talked about this, about, you know, the idea that we'll be able to just drop out a piece of, you know, a, a cool idea. And rather than having to go through the whole process of patenting it, you'll just register it on some distributed ledger. And then, you know, the cool, you know, like the cool thing is like good actors can then, you know, trace this sort of like NFT style thinking and you, you get automatically redistribution of, you get automatically, you know, you know, a little royalty payout anytime somebody took the fender that you just said, Oh, we're going to put that on our car, our startup car, you know, or, or whatever. But, and then you've got Holly Herndon, right. Who did Holly plus where she actually took a voice clone of herself and then, and then decided she was going to send a DAO to manage the likeness rights for her own voice. And so other people, like she did this cool thing at Sonar, festival a couple of years ago where like she had a, a mic and you can pass the mic around and people can sing and it sounds like Holly, you know, but you can't use it without getting a, a, an approval from the DAO. And of course that's nonsense. Piracy are, you know, is, is this sort of ineradicable force like viruses. Viruses are just a fact of life. And so like, it's naive to think that, you know, that that system is going to solve this. The yeah, arms race is going to keep going. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one thing to enable better solutions or new, more digital age appropriate solutions. And it's another thing to think of those solutions as needing to be all encompassing in order to be valid. You know, a lot of the, let's say, blockchain or distributed ledger based solutions are really interesting and they open up models for sharing that physically just they weren't possible before in the digital age, but they're not perfect. They're far from perfect. You can still route around them and hack around them. And, you know, they, they, they don't penetrate into the physical world well enough that if you sold a car via NFT, that that would prevent the car from getting stolen or something, you know? And so kind of like managing our expectations around the limits of these things can be helpful in thinking about their viability. I think what you were talking about in terms of, you know, at shared attribution, like Evo was talking about and micro payments where somebody can download a car and print it in their garage, but each separate part was 3D modeled by different designers and they all get a micro payment payout for each individual part. It's very possible. There will still be people that hack a system like that. You know, I, I, I guess, I, I guess right now where so much is happening so fast that we can't actually get regulation out ahead of the technology development and they don't want to be the chilling effect. They don't want to get into the middle of it and stop the innovation and say, no, 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 you can't, you can only build what we can regulate. And so like, the, it's going to continue to stay ahead. And even, for instance, let's say the most moral possible or most ethical AI library were to come around where it was 100% opt-in and no artists were in it that did not completely opt-in so that nobody could have any of those issues. That's, that's not going to put 
stable diffusion or, or mid journey back in the bottle. So though that software is already out there in the wild, you can't make it go away just because you came up with a more ethical way of going about it. And it'll be hard for them to compete because the database will be smaller of, of, you know, artists that it's deriving from. And so then the now wild pre-censorship version would, would just still be a little better visually. Yeah. It's um, such a billions of images. Yeah, it's yeah. like five billion images. Yeah. And some of them are completely random. They're not artwork at all. They're just stuff online. But so, I mean, I think there's definitely a more ethical way than the way we just launched all this or the, the world just launched all this stuff out. But I, but I don't know that it's going to be able to get out there and get ahead fast enough or get to level to neck and neck with what's out there fast enough that it will gain the lead. And so you have to accept that there's going to be a legitimate marketplace where people are doing legitimate business on these platforms. And then there's going to be what people decided to hack. And that's going to be floating around all over the web too. And they're, it's all going to have to coexist. Yeah. Yeah. I just posted in the chat, have I been trained.com where you can search mm -hmm. the lion database, a couple of the lion databases to see what images are in there. I, I agree with you, Julian, that I just don't hold out hope that policy policymakers and regulators are going to get ahead of this stuff. And this is a, a meta problem on all tech at this point, right? Like our, the, the meta problem being that like our system of governance selects for audiologues who are good at raising money and campaigning rather than selects for people who know what the fuck they're doing when it comes to regulating technology and stuff. So and that itself, I think, is is a problem that will only get worse before it gets better. Probably won't get better until, like, the U.S. government collapses, in, in, in my view. Like, I really think that things are going to get dire before, before we get a governance system that can actually deal with these things responsibly. And I, I, would, I would love to be wrong on that. I would love to see our governance system somehow reinvent itself, but... Just having worked in that world as long as I, I have, I'm pretty cynical. So all that said, I'm trying to take a perspective of what is my own ethical relationship to this. Since I can't rely on um, policymakers to outsource this, I wish I could because that's a much better solution than than us all volunteering to be good people. But the way I'm making sense of it is basically if if I make any money off of AI art. And I, and, and a big part of that, that was prompted by an artist's name, like the shirt. James Jean was, is one of my favorite artists and he was a, a major part of this prompt. If I started selling these shirts, I would vol voluntarily give him a cut. I don't know what that cut would be. I figured that out, but I just feel like that's the only way that I can in like have a sense of integrity around this because I don't think it's the same as like, you know, if I made this by saying like goopy, drippy, colorful t-shirt or whatever, then, you know, then, then I don't owe any, anybody. Right. But like, if I'm using somebody's name and it's their distinctive style behind that artist, I feel like at that point it, they're, 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 they deserve some of the value that 
was created, you know? I mean, I can completely relate to that, but then I started asking myself, well, what if I've used eight or 10 names of very different artists and none of the results look like any of their bodies of work yeah. because I've mashed in so many styles now that you could never recognize who that's supposed to look like. It's completely distinctive. I've even been doing that with film styles lately, putting several of my favorite director's names. And once you put enough names in there, there's no way to formally credit anyone. It's just too mashed up. There's like, totally. it's, it's not, it, that's, there's nothing specifically James Jean or Jodorowsky or about that image. And it makes it more fun. Then I can just start saying, this is a point of departure for something new. It doesn't have to be a reference to the past. Like, yes, I used many elements of the past in it. I, you know, I, anyway, I guess my, my bigger point is just that if I used one artist name, I would feel much more obliged to, to cut, give a cut to that artist. Where if I've used many, I just feel less so exponentially as I add more artist names and style genre names. I don't feel, I'm not obliged to anyone, you know? Yeah. I just don't use names unless there's a client on the other end that's asking me to. I mean, I, I chose to do that for my own work, but in our salons, we also court, we like to challenge each other to think of another way around to get to the same style or look without using a proper name, just as a way to, you know, maybe get better or, or to just change the way we're approaching it. I don't know why I got away from using artist names, except that I was an artist agent and being in that sort of gallery mode, I wanted to be sensitive to where some of the artists in my community didn't want to participate and, and really wanted to pull themselves away from it. So can you still affect the same styles generally too? With, generally. The names? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my stuff looks like Jodorowsky, but I never use his name. And I, I, I have used names of those who are not living, but for the last three or four months, I've generally avoided especially living people's names. And that includes, you know, actors, except for Pee Wee Herman, because Pee Wee Herman said he liked AI art and wanted it. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's give Pee Wee something. Yeah. I mean, no, generally I'm of, I, I'm of the same inclination where I tried for of the 25,000 images I've made in the past six months, most of them, the vast majority, I did not use any names, but I made an exception. I have this funny, like break my own rule on purpose and break it all the way. So I, the ones that I've used artist names, I've used a mountain of them, like just a pile because mm. somehow that seems cleansing to me, you know, where I'm like, it's, it's all of these artists and they don't even share genres. And it's more about the curiosity of just cramming it all in there and the collision. Yes. So, you know, I've kind of I, go, I, go both ways with it. I am absolutely loving though. I bought a whole bunch of antiques at auction and I am taking photographs of old Limoges and hand painted 1800s art and using that as art niche prompts because it's not in the model and it's not on anyone else's copyright at this stage, but it's really mm -hmm. fascinating what you get out of that. Hmm. It strikes me okay. that this conversation is veering rather close to an, another conversation, which is the, the, the question about the relationship between like two parents and like, like multi-parent child raising, you know, hmm. and that like that, you know, cause uh, you know, people, <laughs> the cornbread suburban, you know, I mean, like white bread, you know, suburban American types tend to be like, oh, polyamory. Well, who raises the kids? You know, and, and, you know, Chris Ryan, who I've had on the show, you know, talks a lot about other precedents in other cultures, 
where you know people find it completely natural to just treat children as the child of an entire village, and you know that. that but there, but in those circumstances, what you have are people that are bound to one another, that are aware of their interdependence, and everyone has skin in the game, and you know, and and everyone is has stakes in these children. And that's very different from, you know, circumstances where you're sort of just like, you know, contributing to something, you know, like right now, in a way, the, the, the criticism coming from artists that were, I mean, I, I, you know, it strikes me that this is a situation akin to the stories that you hear from like the UFO experience community where people had, or like the X, like the X files, right. Where like someone was abducted and woke and they're like, you know, they had some weird like pregnancy or, you know, they had like, you know, tissue removed from them and, you know, in order to create like a, a fairy hybrid offspring or something, you know? And, and so, you know, I don't know, Micah's, you, you live in a, a, a scene that pays an extraordinary amount of attention to consent. So maybe you're the right person to like pop off on this, this line of thinking. But like, it strikes me that, you know, that, that this is the math on these two things is very similar. And, and it speaks to this much deeper problem, which is our, our inability to reconcile the way that these tools that are designed in order to create greater convenience make us sort of less, uh, you know, we end up in a situation where we owe less to, to one another, or at least we act like we do. And so I'm curious what you all think about that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up consent because I, I do think that that is what makes the, the I, I like where you kind of went on that, that metaphor of like parenting and stuff, but I think that's the consent line is where the metaphor doesn't work, right? I, I'm not a parent, but one of my favorite things about being where I am in, in basically any like small tropical town, you have packs of street dogs and cats and I, I love animals but I don't like that in like in Oakland for instance every dog is owned by a person and has like a home and needs to be in the home at night and it's just you know and whereas here I walk around my neighborhood and I, I know all of the dogs I don't know their names they don't have collars but I know all of them on site I have a relationship with seven dogs and six cats in my neighborhood and they just belong to the place and the community, which I love. It's it's such a cool feeling that we're all we're all feeding them, we're all taking care of them, we're all giving them pets as we go by. And I, I would love to see child rearing be more like that as well, which is obviously the way that humans did it for a very long period of time before we we yeah put ourselves into boxes. But the yeah the the difference is consent. Whereas, you know, James Jean did not consent to raise, you know, art doggies with me. James Jean created a kennel of art doggies and a, and a business for, for many, many years. And now somebody has clipped open the gate and is stealing his puppies. And if I'm going to be one of those people, I, I at least want to be, you know, making sure that he gets some of the royalties from that. But I would love to, I would also love to see art in general move away like 
the more that we can move away from capitalism, the more that we can create things like basic income and make our ability to survive not connected to our our need to create. Because it seems like for all of us, it is a need. It's it's like we we get depressed and weird and sick if we don't produce something creative. And so I would love to decouple my need to create from my need to survive and pay rent. And the more that we can do that, I would love to raise, um, you know, art puppies with all of y'all and not worry about like who gets the money for it because it's just fun to pet the puppies. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, does that make sense? I, I, yeah, it does yeah, perfectly. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds, I, I, I would, I would love that too. I'm also, I'd also be concerned about like the unintended consequences of like the strings attached to a hypothetical UBI and falling afoul of whatever authority distributes that. And that's not really a space that we've entered before. There's hints of that in like China's social credit system. And I think that's a very different conversation. It means means testing for it to work, but of course getting it without means testing is particularly hard in the U S for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I'd love it. I'd love it to work, but I, I'm concerned that, yeah, ethically doing it is going to be challenging. I'm curious, just by like a show of hands, who has read The Gift by Lewis Hyde? No? I think I've heard of it. There, which has weighed in on this conversation. And okay. And makes this world, which less so, but has also, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say The Gift changed my life, and I don't say that often about books. I'm a ferocious fiction reader, but nonfiction, it takes a lot for me to, to stick with a book beyond the first few chapters. And The Gift was, was a book that not only did I read the whole way through, but I've come back to time and again. And it's about the gift is art. And, and he uses the metaphor of the gift as basically the artist is somebody who is born with a gift. And it's this, you know, your muse, whatever, it comes into you and it's this creative thing that needs to find outlet. And it's, it's like a flowing river and you are, you are in the way and you either, you either get in the way of it or you block it up with trying to, you know, own it or monetize it or whatever. And all of these create blocks and that creates, yeah, a blockage to the flow and that creates a certain like pain in you as an artist or you open it up and you allow it to flow as a gift from you. And it has to do with, yeah, just sort of the the economics and ethics of art as a business. And I I hate that artists have to be business people. I hate that I have to be a business person and put a paywall between, you know, my creativity and the world. But it is what it is right now. And yeah, I, I just, I think anyone who is interested in thinking about this is like should read that book. It's, it's great. So there's one last question I have for folks and we, we kind of touched on this already, but I really, I want to, I want to give it its due because, you know, my, my buddy, Michael Jacobs, AKA the ungoogleable Michelangelo wrote a piece recently called from mind's eye to AI where his critique of all of this, which I've heard other people make, you know, plenty of other people have made about, media generally and and you know this is you know neil postman in in monopoly going all the way back to you know the the apocryphal story of like thoth 
bestowing writing on human beings and, and, you know, the, the concern that what happens is that now no one's going to remember things because we can just put them in a book. And, you know, th- this is the case. Like when I spoke to Caleb Sharp for Complexity Podcast and we talked about how you know, I brought up that the human brain case has actually gotten smaller in the last 25,000 years. And, you know, as a function of the fact that, you know, we can, you know, we are less, reli- you know, solely reliant on our own gray matter to do this stuff because we, we've outboarded so much of cognition and it's like, you know, Jeffrey West talks about how, you know, each, each, if you put us on a curve of like biophysical scaling, each human being living in a modern technological society is actually using as many calories when you count all of the support systems as like a 30,000 kilogram mammal, you know, it's like insane. It's a King Kong, you know, each one of us is a King Kong metabolically, you know, in, in order to have this conversation now with all these servers and, you know, the supply chains and power farms and stuff. Anyway, all of this boils down to, in, you know, Michelangelo and, and other people like J.F. Martel, who's, who I heard speak very eloquently in the past about, you know, the way that the TV has replaced the fire, the campfire that we all used to gather around, you know, and there's a difference between the red light of a fire and the blue light of a television. And what is that difference? And when I had Adara on this podcast, we talked about how VR was kind of becoming this, like, this prosthetic dream space that we were colonizing without, you know, in the way that people came to the, you know, to the Americas and we're like, Oh, they're uninhabited. And like, you know, what's in there and like, you know, what are we trampling on without realizing it? And so this, this, you know, I mean, Topher, especially perhaps because you have such a longstanding and, and active dream practice, you know, I'm, and, and, you know, cause for me, when I look at, you know, when I'm up all night, dicking around with mid journey, I am not dreaming. You know, I may be taking melatonin in order to sort of like compensate for the fact that my brain isn't going to be producing it while I'm staring at my phone, but I am keenly aware of the fact that I'm interfering in my own natural cycles and processes. And maybe this isn't entirely a bad thing, but I mean, I think everyone is pretty well established that we can't do entirely without sleep and dream and their dreams have a function. And, you know, so yeah, this, that yarn ball of stuff, I'd love to, that's, that's the last thing I think really needs to be spoken to in this conversation. But, but what was the question? I, well, I feel the theme, but yeah, yeah. The, the question is, the question is just like, you know, are we not only wilting our own abilities to, you know, generate art by hand and the various amazing blessings that come with the, you know, actually engaging that embodied practice as illustrators, as we move on into this, this extraordinary realm of new creative possibilities, but are we wilting our own imagination? Are we wilting the faculties of our, ability to dream and, and you know that, that okay. that's basically I get, yeah i get the question and i was grappling with that one with a friend yesterday and i would say that it's both i don't think our as a as a lifelong book reader 
I had to visualize everything while reading all those books. And so I loved the visual arts because I could struggle to make what I saw on the screen or on the page match to whatever degree I was able, what I saw in my head. But I had a longstanding practice of visualizing things in my head while reading books. And I'm pretty sure books are migrating mostly to screens and visual media is more abundant than ever. There are more movies and TV shows than, than there ever could have been before and, and even more available. So I don't think our generation, I think our generation and everyone that grew up already visualizing, we're just going to get better at visualizing because this is just even better, faster tools. But I think that the saturation of culture with this will give kids less opportunity to flex that muscle on their own the way books would have forced them to. Now they can literally tell it to the computer and the computer will show them something and they don't have to imagine what that would look like. And, and so I think in the long run, it does actually risk potentially harming visualization, but not really because that's a use case. That's, it's how do you present it? Do you really rob, you know, you can design, you can optimize for either optimize for the embellishing of imagination or optimize for the replacing of imagination. Like it's not an either or question. But that, that's where the risk of optimization would be is if you're, if you let them be too lazy, they don't fill in enough blanks on their own. That's where games and design can come in because you can make it playful to use your own imagination and then see how the AI matches or it doesn't match. You can play with the, the expectations, but also you can sort of reverse engineer and make gameplay out of the process of getting to an end goal without using the words that you thought you would use. You know, maybe I've done this with kids, even like seven and nine years old, teaching them to use their imaginations, but to also, you know, maybe play a, a, a context mashup. Or when I teach mid journey, for example, I encourage people to use both nouns, things that we we understand as objects or as as scenes, but then to use context that might be abstract or weird, right? And so the juxtaposition of things is really important. And kids, it takes them a while, but they usually will understand weirdness right away if you're asking them to put two weird things together and then describe that as it's generating, before they even see what the generation comes out, ask them to describe it. And it's amazing what happens in that space because they get lit up so fast. I love doing it with kids. And it's it's a way in which they begin to see themselves as the storyteller. They begin to expect more from interactive storytelling, especially because they understand that they have a role in the process. They're not just an audience member anymore. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, because I suppose with a book, even though you have the role of visualizing what's in the book, you're a bit more audience, you know, than you would be with interactive storytelling. Um, you know, I think uh, that it comes down to what is, you know, what is the relationship that one has with, uh, with something like image, image generation? You know, if if there is a, you know, if if it, it's a if it plays a complementary role with one's own imagination, you know. That's that's one thing. I mean, I'm not like Michael. You mentioned I'm not. Uh, I'm not concerned about myself so much, but I'm. I am curious about future generations. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's one thing when it there is a sort of like a, a co-creation going on where one's own imagination and vision visionary role plays into it. I know and can relate to you know some of Android Jones's process of pareidolia and finding forms in the chaos as part of the creative process. I mean, that's 
that's one of my favorite things to do. And I've done that a little bit actually with like abstract mid journey stuff too, but it is so much more satisfying when I experience it myself. I'm going to bring up a quote from someone else in the meantime. I'm going to follow up on that, but I also want to point out that if one is over reliant on some of these processes that are, I guess, more disassociated from one's own internal imagination, you know, it could be a problem when one is sort of very reliant on this sort of imagination replacing performance enhancing, you know, image generation drug. And are you just like one EMP blast or, you know, solar storm away from being like, well, what do I do? <laughs> a wash without it. But uh, there is a, a quote I want to read you that I've got right here. I don't know who made, who wrote it, but it is from, I was actually meeting up with someone to talk about image generation work. And uh, they saw this in a coffee shop earlier that day. And it says, quote, it's continued evolution as the perfect tool for expression points to the day when the complete novice can surpass or at least equal the well-trained expert. However, the most important aspect of the creative process that can never be so easily imitated is the deep satisfaction associated with mastery of a skill, end quote. I like that. Yeah, just, just last night I, I saw, thanks to William Serrell, who's a, an amazing member of the Future Fossils Facebook group, I I saw a story called The Silver Eggheads by Fritz Lieber, 1959, that talked about, this may be the earliest instance of this I have on record, I'm, the, in, in, the earliest I'm aware of anyway, that talked about book mills, like machines generating, like basically a GPT-4 style thing where like all of the narrative fiction in the world was being generated by machines now in this science fiction. And the, in the first scene of this story, the writers who are now merely technicians that operate these machines sabotage them. And suddenly the world is deprived of book mills and people are sitting around trying to write stories and they can't because everyone has forgotten how. And I was like, my God, like, you know, every once in a while, somebody like an Olaf Stapleton or something, you know, gets this like so many decades out that it's, it's oppressive. I think that, yeah, maybe, maybe the last thing I, I, I care to say about this is I, I, I agree with what you all have said about like the issue is not whether any of us individually stop quote unquote developing, like speaking the language, stop developing these skills but whether there is enough, whether there are seed banks, basically, of people's that, people that retain these capacities so that if there is an EMP, somebody still knows how to build a thing. You know, somebody, somebody still knows how to do it. I just find this so hard to imagine because especially when you talk about the death of stories or something, like once they've been automated, people forget how to do it. As far as I'm concerned, we are literally made of stories. We are everything that is, that consists that humans think they are is just a big giant pile of stories. Yeah, the self you know? is a story. Yeah. So, so I just can't imagine peeling back enough layers of that onion to get to a place that was like so Buddhist and empty that like we didn't even remember how to make stories. 
issues. Like, would we even know who we were at that point? Would those people even know their own names? Like that's, it just feels, it feels unimaginably far and like a very thin risk. You know, I, I can imagine humans forgetting advanced engineering much faster or tax law much, much faster than they could ever forget, like how to make stories. You know, that's like the most innate human thing, you know? So, but I think there's a lot of different craft style that does get lost to automation. And I'm like, I'm kind of okay with it. Like it came up earlier and I didn't want to interject because everybody had beautiful things to say, but like, maybe it's, it's positive. It's a positive note to close on that. I, I think it'll only add value. The greater scarcity of handcrafts will just make it that much more valued by society. And if anything, we'll see a resurgence of people making that and doing that and the valuing of that as it becomes more scarce because we'll because we'll become so saturated in all the synthetic, you know, images that that people will just be like, I just want to feel this around me. I don't want to feel that other thing. And they'll surround themselves with handcraft even more. And I, I really feel like it's 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 not at risk. Like we're not gonna kill you know, arts and crafts by using our computers so incredibly well. Quite the contrary. I think it'll make those things be even more revered and held up to be valued. Plus there there are, are people who haven't been able to participate in visual art for various reasons. I mean, whether it's disability or chronic illness or whatever. And I think it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's opening that up to them too. So that's another side of it too. I'm not, I'm not saying like that's the only side of it, certainly, but that's, you know, one thing I don't think has been considered very much is like, I don't feel comfortable with saying that, oh, they shouldn't participate because they haven't put in the time because, you know, like, it's like, no, like everyone should have the ability to participate in that if they can, you know, at least, at least generating images. I mean, the, the consumer side of it is a different story, but. Absolutely. And like, even in the, in the question to the question of visualization, whether we'll lose our, our imaginal or visualization capacities, there are people today that literally cannot visualize <laughs> that, you know, that, that already exists. And I don't know, you know, it's, it's not, it's not an absolute given gift. It's not granted. I personally, my internal monologue, my internal, you know, is, is verbal. I hear words. I hear a stream of consciousness that is verbal, but not everybody. I don't think it's even 50% or I don't know what the percentages are, to be honest. Not everybody hears their, their internal thoughts as words. A large majority of us does, I think, but not, not, you know, not 80 or 90%. And I always wonder what it's like inside the minds of those people that don't hear a stream of consciousness as words that, or the people that don't visualize 3d visualizations in their heads in full color, the way I do. And because obviously they have fully functional minds, you know? So I think like the neurodiversity question, we can't even imagine the kind of adaptations that are waiting for us around the corner. And this is not going to be the only catalyst of them. This is going to be one of many. There, there may be people who awaken their ability to visualize by using these tools that would not have any other way. They wouldn't have had the patience to stick it out with a pencil. So, yes. uh, you know, I, I just try and stay open to all the possibility that's out there. Nature is incredibly creative and, and there's nothing, the, the idea that nature is a bounded space and that these things that we're talking about are somehow unnatural, I think is a really offensive way to talk about nature. Like nature has this boundary and it's, it should stay in its yard and this is weird stuff from outside. It's like, no, this is nature and nature is very creative and will not, it's not going to stop just because we're like, confused about what's happening anyway that's that's my little moment you know soapbox moment but it's beautiful to think about all the artists like uh 
I have changed different media many times in my life based on my ability in the moment. And that includes hand trimmers, for example, right? So all of the artists who stopped painting or doing their glass art or whatever it was because their bodies no longer let them do it. That capacity is wide open again. And it's amazing. I'm, I'm watching elders in their 70s and 80s who haven't picked up any sort of illustration tools in 20, 30 years who are excited about their creative process again for the first time in decades. I, I, I That's the part I'm excited to open up, not just in future generations, but right here, right now. I, I think it will do something extraordinary in terms of public culture and and a, a resurgence of desire for the creative in our daily lives in our walls and in every aspect of our life mm-hmm. I, for one i'm super excited about being 150 years old with completely failed mummified chest you know corpse of a body <laughs> and yet i can xr my way into some telerobotic tantra bot and just like <laughs> all day you know like yay i still got it no, that's horrible. But hey, but then again, maybe it's wonderful, right? Doesn't sound that bad. I'm I'm already I'm prematurely old just by saying that I don't <laughs> I don't I, I don't see the value of that possibility. <laughs> oh God! I, I just want to jump in and say I think I think we can maybe do or we might be doing a disservice by even describing this as automation because at least for me there is no part of this that my creative process with AI that is automated, it takes a lot of work to get something that is as good as the thing in my head. And Mm. so it's more like, it's like this, this process where I'm trying to wrangle the computer to do the thing that I want it to do. And through that process, you get happy accidents. You get, you get a lot of the same stuff that you get when you're involved in a older process like drawing or whatever, but with even more randomness and like more happy mistakes, I would say. So I think this, I think a lot of people get confused about this because their only introduction to AI, AI art is trying mid journey once typing in one thing, they create something cool and that seems super automated. They're like, Oh, I just, I typed in and usually their, their prompt is very short. It's like a beautiful house and then they get a beautiful house and they think that that's the end of the process. Whereas some of us are using the tool for hours and and hours and hours and and just trying to guide it and sculpt it into what we want to see in our head. And I think that's, at least for me, been good for my imagination. Like it's at it because if my imagination needs me to like pick up a pencil and draw something, I'm not going to do that every day. Like I do that maybe once a week. But if I just have something in my head, I'm like, I kind of want to see that. I can, and I'm like sitting in bed, I can just like pull up Discord, I can pop it in, and then like three hours later, of course I'm not sleeping, but <laughs> like I, I kind of like went down the rabbit hole, whereas I, I probably wouldn't have pick it, picked up the paper and pen, and then that cre- that like imaginative urge would have died. And so, yeah, I just want to, I guess like, I worry about the atrophy of the creative spark as well, and I also think that it can like go both ways. So, yeah. That's a good point. And that speaks to your earlier comments about, you know, the, the way in which I think a lot of people misunderstand these, these tools as just like giving you what you want. Whereas like, I cannot give this thing, I cannot get mid journey to give me what I want. I can't get it to do it. 
you know, it's, it's full of surprise <laughs> and delight, but like it, it cannot just spit out the thing. So, you know, well, it helps you find you, what you're actually you looking for. Been able to because I'll say that when I do, it's thrilling. Like I'm, I mean, it's not always the exactly the thing that was in my head, but it feels like I'm playing a little game and I won the game by getting it to make the thing that was close to my head. And I'm, I'm curious. So when you say you can't get it to do that, are you saying that you never win the game or it's just kind of a frustrating game a lot of the time? Well, okay. So this latest series that I did with, with these sort of, you know, ethereal unearthly landscapes that I'm actually, I've, 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 I've waiting on a, a, a big order of print canvases of these that I'm going to hang up in a local coffee shop. I made it, I don't know, like a week or so into that process before I hit a sweet spot where every new generation of variants was felt good. And I wanted to upscale all four of them. And I think that that's the most exciting thing for me about mid journey specifically when other people are like, you know, when it's compare contrast, like the, the, my favorite thing about that particular instance of this is like, t- you know, forking the path of possibility and going back and, and like being like, okay, I'm going to run variants of that. And the fact that that allows you to think about this, like in, as this has been the oldest thought for me is that what we're actually doing is animal husbandry. You know, like you can think about this in terms of, you know, you're, you, like, like, you're not yeah. doing the work of breeding those cocker spaniels. They're doing, they're doing the work, you know, <laughs> but like, but you know, you are curating it in the sense yeah. that Brian, Eno talked about the most important art form of the 21st century being curation. Totally. And so, you know, there is a sense to it in which, yeah, it's, it's human on the loop and that, that remains important. And then the other part is that, you know, because you're running, you, you have the option at least to run this bot, in a public channel of like the, like I have this mid journey up in the future fossils discord and people can run their own variants of my prompts. And I love that social component. Like Eva, you know, you're talking about, you know, that, that social piece of it. And I think that, that, you know, like, like there are tools like endless.fm that are exploring this with music where, you know, you're, you're people are like mashing your samples in real time. You're like, you're working together in an internet audio workstation. You know, and I think that that's, that's a really exciting piece of it. But at the same time, you, you rescind control when you are co-improvising with other entities, be they, you know, or living or mechanical. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's, you know, again, an, an, yet another nod to Kevin Kelly and his book out of control, which is about, you know, the role of the use of evolution in technology and how that means that we have to think differently about you know, what it means to be a cybernetic helmsman rather than, you know, cause, cause they're just, they're dealing with the wind and the water and all these factors that they don't really, you know, that they're not regulating top down. And so that's what I mean when I say like, you know, the most, you know, I loved, I, I felt most pegged by your, your hippie that was talking about how the, the, the AI was like, talking to their, like their subconscious through the machine. Like that's something that scout, scout Wiley and I have been, you know, talking about is like the use of these tools as a kind of 21st century oracular interface, you know, where it's like the, it's like the itching on a, you know, for computers or something, but that's that not. That character was definitely based on you, by the way, Michael. 
<laughs> Son of a bitch. Yeah. But so yeah, that's that's it. That's that that's what I mean is like, you know, it's not you're not sitting there, you know, genetically engineering a de-extincted velociraptor. Except I mean that's exactly what it is, right? Because the velociraptors totally did not behave the way that they that people thought they would. And they they were full of horrible surprises. So, anyway. <laughs> That's my rant. On that note. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all so much for being a part of this. If anyone else has closing thoughts, now's your, your time. But yeah. I think people just, you're all, these are amazing artists, each of you in your own way. And, and you should, if you're listening to this, if you don't know who these people are, you should go now and follow them. So, um, thank, you, Michael, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. It was a conversation. Well, yeah, thanks, one last Michael. thing. <laughs> One last thing that I've been really excited about touching upon something that Micah mentioned earlier is I've started to just do image to image where I will like upload different piece of my pieces of my own artwork that I've made. Like here's a drawing, here's a virtual reality sculpture, and then mashing those together and seeing what happens. And that's been, that's been a very exciting thing to do to like mash up different styles of my own existing work together from different eras and see what happens. Exactly. Using old sketchbooks as image prompts. And then to use that for world building and to then take that into a generative XR context and say, like, here's the whole world taking those images, those 3D models, and and even the scripts using, you know, GPT-3 and and soon the others. I think we've got such potential for vast storytelling, like whole new worlds that aren't necessarily going to look exactly like what we've seen for the last 50 years in storytelling. I feel like almost everything we've seen the last few decades is sequels and derivatives. And now we have this opportunity to be wide open. So as a storyteller, I'm so excited as someone who just likes to create new worlds from scratch. I want to be able to invite people into that process and that's wide open now. So that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and on that, Topher, I'm I'm using not just the hand-drawn part as an input, but also at at the last part of the process when it get you know the AI gets it 98% of the way there, but then I pull it into an app like Procreate where I can you know do digital yes. art on a, on my iPad, totally. and it's kind of like kind of feeling like almost like that middle portion is the is the part that we're like convincing ourselves is a normal thing for a human to do, but it's actually kind of insane. If you've ever been an artist and worked for hours and hours and hours, like, you know, shading this one little part of this thing, it's kind of insane. And I, I do it. And, and all of us as artists, like do that, kind like that kind of, it's like an OCD, like sprint to, get this thing looking the way that you want it. But I'm kind of excited to see how much more I'll create if I can like reduce the amount of time I'm spent doing the, you know, small shading of that little corner of the screen and doing the more like front end and back end where I'm imagining the thing. And then I'm doing that like final polishing touch on it. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I'm excited about. So, oh my God, we, I feel like we could talk about this for so So that's the last thing I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, and, and and one other thing I just started doing is like, like generating things that look sculptural, and then using those as reference to make you know three D work in VR. So like oh, cool. you know, do, like doing doing a a collab with with someone else in Gravity Sketch or something simultaneously, and we're both referencing 
you know, a mid journey image. And then we're working on different parts of that and sculpting it in 3d, et cetera. Yeah. Like changing mediums. Sounds hot. I mean, like, like even, even like mid midstream with like remixing in mid journey, you can like make something a paper cut, make it a sculpture, make it a painting and it changes how it interprets it. And sometimes in yeah. unexpected and interesting or under unexpected and horrifying way. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I, I can feel the resentment vibes coming off my wife. Uh, right now for not helping with these kids. So I'm going to scoot. Thank you all again so much. If I can, y'all have a great love it. Take care. Thank Thank you guys so much. Take care. Y'all much love. Cheers. Be well. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Once again, future fossils is an entirely listener supported show. I have children and I would love to make this show sustainable. Finally, in 2023. So if you enjoyed this conversation and the others that I host, please bop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield or michaelgarfield.substack.com and chip in a couple bucks every month. Together, we can radically improve both the frequency and the production quality of this show in the year to come. And also, I have compiled an insanely extensive list of follow-up resources around this conversation, including numerous op-eds written by the panelists that you heard today. That's over at this episode's listing at Patreon. Go check it out. Dive in. Form an educated opinion about this stuff. I cannot stress that enough. And with that, I'm going to ring you out with a not-quite-final mix of my song Life Finds a Way and Hyperstition, which I regard as the most succinct articulation I can offer of both the promise and the peril of advanced technologies enabling us to close the gap between our imaginations and the material world. Enjoy. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back soon with a conversation with the absolutely wonderful Robert Poynton. Take care. Life expands to new 
territories painfully, even dangerously. Thank you. 